God, we declare loudly, boldly, boastfully that you are returning. Lord, we have no shame, no doubt, no petty mythologizing of that truth. You will return. Your word promises it. Our hope depends on it. So, Lord, we look, even as as Caleb began this service saying, I will lift my eyes to the hills. Lord, we continually raise our eyes to the heavens where you will return. And from you, we will, re- we will obtain every part of the inheritance of our salvation. And in this, Lord, no matter what trials beset us, befall us, we look to that hope and we rejoice, Lord, that you are coming You're coming for a bride. You are coming for a church that is prepared for you. And so, Holy Spirit, we rejoice in that. And we ask that whatever work that you would do in us to turn our hearts away from all this temporal garbage that just monopolizes our thoughts, our, our passions, our lusts, our, uh, our, our, our desires. Lord, just, just obliterate that stuff in our minds and our eyes and let us, as we've sung twice today, let us turn our eyes to Jesus, the resurrected, reigning, returning King of our hearts. We turn our eyes to you, Jesus. And we say with passion, we say with intensity, we say with joy, we say even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So God, you've given me a word to share, and Lord, I don't want to share anything that you haven't given me. And so I am, as I do every single week, I'm asking for your help. Lord, there's nothing that I can do with this but mess it up. So, God, I ask for your strength. I ask for your ability. I ask for your wisdom. I ask for your editing power, Lord God, to come and just overshadow me this morning as I share the beauty, the joy, the wonder of your word with your people. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I um, want to echo what Pastor David said at the communion uh, preparation that I want to acknowledge the the Bond and Brooks family and tell you guys we're praying for you guys we love you guys and um, I, it, it occurred to me this is a weird message to have to preach this week because it occurred to me that things that I am going to tell you to look forward to Stanley is enjoying Amen. right now Stanley is enjoying those things that's exciting to me I'm a little jealous of him to be honest with you just a little bit. So here we are. Paul is beginning the last chapter of Thessalonians. Congratulations, you made it. You made it. All the way through the first four chapters of 1 Thessalonians, you're in the fifth chapter, and we're going to begin that today. And, and he begins it by continuing to talk about Jesus' second coming. We talked about that last week at the end of chapter 4. And he, he's told them in chapter 4 that there's a promise associated with people who are part of the body of Christ, that Jesus is coming to, to absolute, absolutely establish, finish, complete the salvation 
that has been promised to them. He has, through the cross, saved their spirits, and through the process of the Holy Spirit's sanctification, he has been saving their souls, and now he will absolutely save their bodies to the glory of God the Father. But here in chapter 5, he, he begins with, with a different direction. He's now going to speak of, uh, of the damnation that awaits those who are outside of Christ. Jesus, we'll be celebrating this in a little, little uh, you know, over 60 days from now. Jesus appeared, as Isaiah prophesied, to be a suffering servant for mankind in a manger at Bethlehem. But when he returns, make no doubt about it, he will be a judge. He's going to be a judge, and he's going to deliver God's holy vengeance on the wicked. That doesn't make any of us comfortable. And no one likes to say that. And if you brought a friend today, you're really regretting that I'm talking like this. But it's just the truth, and, and we're under obligation to preach the whole counsel of God's word. And so Paul begins to talk about this aspect and, and the, the aspects of the return of Christ that many of us are so obsessed with. And we might wish, as we look at these passages, that, that he would answer their questions. The Thessalonians have sent these questions. We might wish that he would answer them like some wizard with a crystal ball. But, but Paul, just like he did in chapter 4, last week that we talked about, he doesn't address their, their, their um, you know, the, their, their questions like Jack Van Impey, instead he does it like a pastor, and he, and he does it to encourage them. And he begins this with this portion. He says it like this. Now, now pay close attention to this. Don't read over it. Don't think that this was for a church 2,000 years ago. He says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Now, if you were a Thessalonian, and probably if you're a 21st century American, you're thinking, oh, yeah, I do. I don't get all that crazy imagery in the book of Revelation, and, and I need details here. These guys want dates. They want a timeline. They want to know what they should expect, when they should expect it. The Thessalonians, in this regard, were not unlike many Christians today. Books that predict the details and the chronology of the end of time are often bestsellers among us. We love that stuff. Man, we'll throw money at it for days at a time. We love it. And the disciples were no exception to our level of curiosity. They asked Jesus the same details. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives. Jesus just makes a huge pronouncement about the end. And, and they ask him, when is the end going to come about? But Jesus himself doesn't give them the specific answers they were looking for. How frustrating, Jesus. Can you play a little bit of ball with us here? He didn't give them the specific details. He says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. You might want to consider that next time you slap down $20 for a book when a guy's saying, I know. Are you awake this morning? See, people are going to say, I know, I know. But Jesus, the author of all truth, told his disciples, who became the apostles, who wrote the New Testament, he said to them, no one knows. Pretty important bit of information to keep in your back theological pocket. No one knows, not even the angels, nor the Son, but only the Father. There may be a couple of reasons that Paul didn't answer greater questions about the timing 
and these could be a couple, that if people know the exact date, if there was a date that was written somewhere in the book in the New Testament that said on April 13th, 2037, Jesus is coming back, or but differently, if it said on, eight, on October 21st, 2019, Jesus were coming, what do you think your response to that news would be? Think about that. If people knew the exact date of Christ's return, and it's soon, like tomorrow, you might just slip into slothfulness. That's not possible, right? I mean, you wouldn't look at all your stack of bills and say, eh, probably not going to pay those. I have 24 hours. I can probably think of something a little better, a little funner to do with this money. Not you, but the guy next to you, I guarantee would do that. I promise you that. If Jesus is coming next week, why pay the bills? I'll just wait for that heavenly bus to come and pick me up. And we'll see clearly, sadly, in the next few weeks that that's exactly what many of the Thessalonians did. Exactly what they did. But on the other side, if you knew the return of Christ, if, if, if Jesus had said there on the Mount of Olives, if Paul had said to the Thessalonians, I am not coming back for 10,000 years, what would your urgency B, what would the level of your urgency be to obey the commands of Jesus that he gave us before his return? Can we be honest? Probably wouldn't be too urgent. You would rightly assume that you had all of the time in the world to pursue other more worldly concerns instead of preparing yourself. And what's interesting is on this side of the coin, Peter predicted that was exactly what would happen. And if you hear the voices both in the world and the church, that is exactly what is happening. Peter says that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. It's been 2,000 years. Nothing's changed. Don't worry about it. But see, the message of Christ's coming should have, biblically, two effects, two clear effects on every one of us should absolutely affect us all in this way. The message of Christ's coming should, should make us have a desire to be ready, confident that he could come at any time. That before these words come out of my mouth that Jesus Christ could return. That's the first response that that should have on us. But the second response is that we should be busy. There should be an urgency that makes us diligently desire to accomplish Christ's purposes in the world. He said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith or will he find us napping and yawning and pursuing all kinds of worldly desires and pleasures and stacking up our stuff and building up our status? Or will he find faith? I knew you were coming, Jesus. I knew you were coming, and ta-da, here you are. So Paul doesn't try to supply more details than those he's already passed on to the church. They do not need more information. And listen to me, you do not need more information. You are just like they are to live in the expectancy and the urgency of what you're sure of. 
And let me remind you what you're sure of. That Jesus Christ is returning. He is coming back. And Paul says... To begin this passage, these troubling things, that there is a second side, there's a negative side of this second coming coin. Let's read his words again. He says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Paul draws from Old Testament language here when he mentions the day of the Lord. And in the, in the, all throughout the Old Testament, this day of the Lord that many of the Old Testament prophets spoke of, it's, it's envisioned as this final outpouring of God's righteous wrath on the wicked. The day of the Lord was also anticipated as a day of vindication for the righteous who've been faithful to God through trial and persecution. But don't mistake, don't lose that other side of the coin. It was portrayed as a day of terror as a just God poured out retribution on the wicked who'd frittered their lives away in rebellion and in mockery of the holiness of God. And Paul says here, Something that Jesus had said and that Paul and that Peter will repeat. He says that this day will come as a thief in the night. What is the implication of that? It's that this day of the Lord is going to be both unexpected and unpleasant for those who experience it. Raise your hand if you've ever been robbed or burgled anybody's ever broken in your house your car raise your hand real high where i can see it didn't you just enjoy that nobody enjoys being robbed nobody does and this day for the ones who are not ready for it it's coming like a thief no one enjoys it. But that's not it. You also, no one, no one, not only do we not enjoy being robbed, no thief ever calls, texts, emails, Facebooks you and says, hey, I need to go rob your stuff. Are you, you and your wife still going to that movie on Saturday night? Is that a good night? Can I just swing by then and just rip you off completely to throw all your stuff in my truck and leave? Is that, is that going to work for you? Of course not. A thief's coming is unpleasant, but it's also unexpected. And Jesus is saying, I'm showing up someday, and you're not going to like it. You're also not going to see it coming. And I'm not meaning to make light of this. This day, for those who are not prepared for it, will not just be a bad day that you can power through. Think of the worst day that you've ever had that you survived. This will not be anything like that. Everything will change suddenly and forever. It's going to be a day of pain and torment where all of your bills come due all at the same time. No more credit will be extended to you. All the bills are due. And no unbeliever, not one, will escape God's holy wrath on that day. Paul proves just how unexpected this day will be when he tells us that the victims of that day will be saying, ah, there's peace, there's security, everything's great. And they'll be saying that right before the hammer falls. 
Jesus said something very similar about these last days. He told his disciples there on the Mount of Olives, he said, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. What Jesus is saying is, hey, it was just business as usual. Same old stuff, you know, same brand new day, same old stuff. And he says they were doing this until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware, there's that word, like a thief, unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. You're not going to see it coming. You're not getting warning lights. It's just going to hit you suddenly. The spirit of blissful ignorance that's even now at work in the world is going to prevail until that last moment when men and women, boys and girls, will never even see the destruction that's coming to consume them in an instant. And in that moment, all the mockers, the rebellious, the apathetic, the hypocrites, the abusers, the users, the violent, and the lazy will be swept away in a flood of righteous fury. Amen? I was half-hearted, and I don't blame you. Paul not only says that the day will come unexpectedly and unpleasantly like a thief, but he also says that sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And this speaks of inevitability. Ladies, you know this. Once a woman's contractions begin, there is no turning back. When those contractions hit, you don't say, Hey, can we schedule this for next Thursday? Oh, no, the baby's coming. I also think that we should take notice of the words that's easy to read over, sudden destruction, and consider what they might mean to the chronology of these events. Although some of you may disagree with me, and that's okay. That's okay. Can people love Jesus and disagree on some of the details of this stuff? Okay, good. I'm going to hold you to that. I have come to view this and many other end times passages differently over the years. When I was growing up, like many of you, and, and maybe some of you still are there, um, I was taught to expect an initial secret rapture of the church in which Jesus would come and he would gather his church, and this would be followed by a seven-year period in which the day of the Lord would unfold on earth in a time known as the Great Tribulation. And at the end of all this time, we are told that Jesus would return again, again, um, in, a, in what we call the second coming, and he would punish the wicked and set up his earthly kingdom. But here's what I'm trying to see in this passage. When I hear about Jesus comes seven years, Jesus comes again, when I hear about that, that doesn't sound like sudden destruction to me. I'm just being honest with you. It doesn't sound like sudden destruction. So I don't see this in either this or the other key texts. What I see... And I'd be glad at some point to make this argument for you if you're interested. I see a single cataclysmic event called interchangeably the return of the Lord, the second coming, the day of the Lord, happening within a relatively short period of time. When the Lord suddenly appears, when he gathers his church, when the wicked are simultaneously judged, followed by the establishment of his earthly kingdom, leaving the righteous amazed and blessed. And the wicked, absolutely, totally devastated. However, remember, we can love Jesus and see this differently. If you can't see that, 
you are more than welcome to disagree with me because I will never from this pulpit ever, ever infringe on your God-given American right to be wrong. (laughs) Promise. Regardless, (laughs) Paul says that on the day of the Lord, Paul says that on the day of the Lord, speaking still of the wicked, they will not escape. There will be no pleading for mercy or forgiveness on that day. There will be no uh, begging, pleading, walking your sin back that's going to avail on that day. The demands in that moment of holy justice will be fully satisfied. And more than that, the death of Jesus Christ by the wicked will be completely vindicated in that moment. All of the villains throughout history that seemed to get away with their crimes got off scot-free. Now they're going to have to pay for their transgressions. And this is only the beginning. Only the beginning. This terrible, awful day is only the beginning. They, they won't only, only pay for their sins, but the Bible actually teaches us that they are going to answer for their sins as well. Revelation 20, John is wrapping up his vision of these events, and he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And verse 15 is critically important. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. John is depicting a day here where we will all be judged. But there's going to be a difference, a key difference in how we're judged. Some are going to be judged by what is written in your own personal biography. Notice that John said, and the books plural were open. You're going to be judged by what's been written in your uh, your personal biography, the one in which every page is filled with the story of how you did what was right in your own eyes, worshiping the idol of yourself. But there is an alternative. There's another book, singular. It's called the Book of Life. It's not the book of who is going to live. It's the book of life. The one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's the book of life. It's not my biography. I want to be judged on that day by Jesus' biography. That's how I want to be judged. As I watch those around me judged by their own personal stories, 
man, I hope my book is nowhere to be found because it would not get me out of trouble. It would get me in more trouble than probably anyone standing there. But what I want to be judged by is by Jesus' biography that said he was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. The, The chastisement that brought me peace was placed upon him, and by his stripes I am healed. That's the biography I want to be judged by in that day. This is the book, in this biography, this is the book where I'm already dead. But praise God, according to the book of Colossians, my life is hidden with Christ in God. It's important to note that all of Paul's talk of this fate of the ungodly is not a rebuke to the Thessalonians. It's not even an invitation for the Thessalonians to repent. Paul is assuming that the people he's talking to, at least the majority of them, have already placed their trust in Christ. How do we know that? Because of this next scripture. He says, but you, said all these people are going to be judged, but you are not in darkness. Man, let that marinate for just a second. You, believer, you, follower of Christ, are not in darkness. And because of that, you're not in darkness. That day is not going to surprise you like a thief. That's good news. If you haven't figured out where the good news portion of the, of the message began, it started just now. You're not in darkness. The day is not going to surprise you like a thief. For you're children of light, children of the day, not of the night or not of the darkness. The wicked who operate in spiritual darkness will be surprised and overwhelmed by this day. But those that have trusted in Christ, though they may not know the exact moment or the exact day or even the exact year, or they, they live in a constant awareness that these events will take place. That Christ is returning, and He's returning for them much differently than He's returning for those who are lost and in darkness. He is returning for them, and they focus their hearts and adjust their lives accordingly. Followers of Christ don't have to live in fear of judgment. I need to say that again for those of you who have already fallen asleep. Followers of Christ don't have to live in fear of judgment. I am not awaiting a day where I'm going to be judged by my own deeds on a scale of God's perfect justice. See, to be a Christian at the very basic level means that we understand that all of our sin, all of it, your sin nature, every ungodly act you've committed from the day you were born till the day you die, all of your sin has already been punished. But not in you, in the body of Jesus Christ. On the cross, it's already done Paid in full, it is finished, is what Jesus said. It's true that we might, in this life, from from time to time, face God's good discipline. The Bible says it's a good thing. It's a sign that He loves us. But the fear of final judgment, of being cast into that lake of fire, is over. It's not an issue for you anymore. And if you start to believe that, it'll change the way you live. 
Your, your, your desire for and ability to walk in holiness when you will increase when you're not just always trying to be good enough to stay out of hell. Jesus loves you and he has paid your bill. This causes us to look to the end, as Pastor David was talking about with communion, to look to the end of all things with hope and not terror. And, and let me just encourage you, because some of you might be here hearing the first part of this message and you're still trembling. Don't ignore that. If you tremble when you think of Christ's coming and the judgment that accompanies it, you may want to examine the validity of your Christianity. Don't just put your hope in some religious act you did maybe a week ago or a year ago or a decade ago. Don't do it. If the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes upon you when you hear of the judgment that awaits the wicked, the judgment that awaits those who have ignored and and disregarded Jesus, pay attention to that. Come to Jesus today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Put your hope and trust in Him. Say, Jesus, I'm not going to get there. My book will not get it done. But I put my trust in your biography, Jesus. I'm putting my trust in your biography. And we would love to talk to you if that's you this morning. The awareness of Jesus' promised coming for us who have trusted Christ can fill us with joy, with confidence, and with hope no matter what our present circumstances are. What a blessing and what a relief this must have been to the Thessalonians under the persecution they were enduring. Man, people are throwing us in jail. This surely means God's mad at us. No! And you hadn't been... You hadn't received all the benefits of your salvation yet. They're coming. Hold on, Thessalonians. Hold on, NRLC people. Your salvation's coming. The Bible says, look up for your salvation is drawing near. I'm not talking about when you let Jesus in your heart. I'm talking about the whole enchilada. When you will be saved to the uttermost. Soul, mind, body, spirit, all of it. It's coming. It's coming. By contrast, he makes this contrast, paints this picture between light and darkness, day and night. Paul is telling the Thessalonians, you and you, I'm saying to you, church, have privileged information. You know something that the world does not know. You know how the story is going to end before the last chapter begins. That's a good position to be in, isn't it? You know it. Imagine, imagine with me. That if in a single moment of tragedy, a fire, a flood, whatever, all of your resources were wiped out, all of them, they're gone. Your home is gone. Your vehicles are gone. All of your assets are gone. Your saving retirement accounts, all your family heirlooms, everything is gone. Nothing is left to you but the clothes on your back. It's all gone. Can you imagine devastation like that? Now imagine that you're in that situation, and and a week before, this happened today, this tragic, horrible event happened today, but a week ago, you got a letter from a lawyer here in town. And, And this certified letter tells you that you have a rich uncle you never even knew about, and he's passed away. And you're supposed to show up on Monday morning, tomorrow morning. This has happened today, this terrible loss. And you're supposed to show up tomorrow morning in his office and pick up a check for $1 billion. Now here's my question to you. How would that news of the check that's waiting for you shape your experiences of the losses you just went through? 
How would that shape the experience? Would you say, oh, I miss my house and my cars are gone. I miss that 12-year-old Toyota. (laughs) Would you do that? Of course not. And so many people today are looking, they're, they're weeping over what they're losing in this life because of Christ instead of looking forward to the inheritance that awaits them. Right around the corner. Peter says, watch this, listen to the language of his, his greeting of his first letter. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Watch, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, brand new life, to a living hope. This isn't a dead hope. This isn't a hopeful hope. This is a living hope. It it animates us. It causes us to live. He says, through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And and what is our living hope? That we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. I'm telling you, heaven is the lawyer's office and the check is on the desk. And Stanley picked it up the other day. imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. When? In the last time. The day that comes is going to reveal the fullness of your salvation. You think you're saved now? And you are. Your spirit, your soul, you're saved. But man, you hadn't seen nothing yet. The fullness of your salvation. In this you rejoice. Now watch. Here's the catch. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. All the stuff is gone. All you got is the clothes on your back. So that this tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all going to make sense someday. This is the message of Christ's return. The promises of the gospel sustain us, knowing that what it is now isn't all it will be. That's the beauty, the glory of the gospel. And this should affect how we live. So Paul goes on to say, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Unlike in chapter 4, Paul's use of sleep here doesn't mean death. He used a a reference to sleep in chapter 4 that meant death. But here it means spiritual indifference and laziness that is natural to worldly people. He says people sleep and they get drunk under cover of darkness. He's talking about two different kinds of problems. To be oblivious to the coming judgment and to be rebellious to God's holiness that that judgment will reveal. People of the world and and the worldly people that often infest the church are spiritually sleeping. And because they're sleeping, they are oblivious. They have no idea what's coming. Remember the reference to the thief coming like a thief in the night? This is what Jesus said. He said, but know this. That if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. People that know a thief are coming are ready. Amen? 
Spiritually oblivious people ignore the tranquilizing effects of their own sin, and they find comfort in the sedative properties of mere religious observances. Ah, I go to church, I give a little money, I was baptized, all this stuff. Mere religious observances just kind of set them apart and put them asleep. When they defy God's law, they make excuses, or they judge themselves against the standard of other people instead of the standard of God's holiness. But those sleeping people will awaken when the trumpet of God announces that judgment day has come. No more sleeping on that day. On the other hand, people that have heard the gospel of Christ but have chosen to get drunk on rampant immorality or worldly philosophies that say that these warnings are either metaphorical or mythological, those people are just getting drunk on all that. But a day is coming when they will be shaken violently to sobriety when the cry of God's command that we heard last week is heard around the world. But Paul says, now getting back to us, Paul says that you and I are not to approach the day of the Lord like this, sleeping or drunk. We are to rouse ourselves from the sleep of unrepentant sin and empty religion. We're to throw down our bottles of worldly values and thinking and and throw open the shades and walk in this world as children of light and children of the day. Paul says that we do this by putting on armor to protect the parts of us that are vulnerable, our hearts and our minds. This passage that we read this morning in this, that one verse is very similar to the one in Ephesians 6 where it speaks of putting on the whole armor of God. Here in Thessalonians, Paul says that we put on a breastplate to, to protect our heart. It's designed to protect our heart. And, and our breastplate is, is made of faith and love. Faith, we guard our hearts by clinging to Jesus. To say, Jesus is all I got, he's all I'm going to get, and I'm fine with that. But we also cling to protect our hearts by, by not only loving God, but by loving each other. We protect our hearts through faith and love. And then he says our hope that we have in the return of Christ is like a helmet, which protects our mind. Think about that. Helmet protects your head, your mind, your brain. This means that the hope of ultimate salvation will keep you from going nuts going insane in this crazy, out-of-control, inexplicable world. The hope of salvation, you know, you, you hear some politician say something really stupid or some criminal do something out of control, heinous, and you go, oh yeah, this is all heading somewhere. I don't have to go crazy, I don't have to lose my peace because I know that this means something and we're going somewhere. I have hope in a, in a Christ who is returning to, to rescue us out of this and to judge those who are committing those things. It's going to happen. When nothing makes sense in this world, no matter how bad it gets, you have the assurance that God will have the last word. You can take a deep sigh of relief when you know that, right? God's going to have the last word. But also notice that for the third time in this book, Paul returns to the triad of foundational characteristics. He says, put on this uh, breastplate of faith and love, and then hope. He does it again. Faith, hope, love. We've talked about that a lot. He's, he's continuing to do it. These are always ingredients for successful Christian living. If you're not living successfully, ask yourself if you're lacking in faith, if you're a- a- lacking in hope, if you're lacking in love, and you'll find something about 
where the weakness in your walk is. And here's the great kind of summation, the benediction of all things, everything Paul said in this passage this morning. He says, for God has not destined us for wrath. That's good news. You are not set apart to be destroyed. You are not a vessel. If you have trusted in Christ Jesus, you are not a vessel to just soak up the wrath of God. Jesus already did that for you. He hasn't destined you for wrath, but to obtain salvation, that full salvation I was speaking of, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, here he is talking about death, we might live with him. This is the great promise of the return of Jesus for those who have believed in his name. Wrath no longer is a part of the final picture for you. Believers who are awake, that means alive, at the time of the coming of the Lord, will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and they'll be caught up to be with the Lord forever, ruling and reigning with Him. Spirits of unbelievers who have died, we talked about this last week, who have fallen asleep, will return with Christ to retrieve their resurrected, glorified bodies, and together we will serve the Lord in sinless, eternal security and joy. And every tear in that moment will be wiped away forever. As he did in our text last week, Paul concludes by reminding us of the great purpose of these passages, last week's and this week. And he says this, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. God's intention in us knowing that he's coming is for us to encourage one another, calling each other to endure, to overcome, to make it. He intends that we should face any trials or persecution with the knowledge that right around the corner, everything is about to change. It's all going to be different soon. You say, soon, Mark, it's been 2,000 years. Yes, soon. Because the Bible says that with the Lord, a thousand years is one day, and a day is like a thousand years. So for Jesus, his time away has been a weekend. Think about it. And the Bible tells us in First Peter that his delay means that his delay is a symbol, it's a sign of his mercy. He doesn't want anybody to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you have a religious checklist that you've checked off a few boxes and you put all your trust in that, and I'm telling you it's not enough. All that religious checklist is going to be is a bookmark in the book whereby you will be judged. That's it. But if you just will take your biography and chuck it as far away from you as you can and say, Jesus... Will you today write me into your biography? Will you write me into your story? I don't even want my book anymore. I just want to be a footnote in yours, Jesus. Write me into your story. Then you will have nothing to fear from the events that I assure you are coming on this world. You will have nothing to fear. All you'll know is that I have not been destined for wrath, but I've been saved to the glorious 
all-sufficient sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I just invite you to put your hope in that this morning? Man, I hope you'll take me up on that offer. I hope you will. And would you just do me a favor? I'm not going to point you out. There's no spotlights I'm going to put on you. But if you make that decision this morning, would you just let me know so that I can pray with you and even give you some resources to help you help you uh, press through and make it? I'd love that. Just come talk to me after church. I'm going to be around for a little bit. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Can I encourage you, if you're a believer this morning, to just turn this message into a message of thanks, into a prayer of thanks, rather. Just thank the Lord, that not through any works that you have done, but through his great mercy, you are not destined for wrath. You have no shackles on you. There's no sentence that has been spoken over you, cursing you to damnation. You have been delivered from wrath because Jesus wasn't. Did you hear me? Your wrath, still, there was still a portion of your wrath that got paid, but it didn't get paid by you. It was all applied to Jesus. There's nothing you have to do. Jesus doesn't want you to pay back that bill except to give him your entire life and let him be Lord of it. Pretty fair trade, I would say. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, I've done what I thought was my job this morning, and so I'm asking you to do yours and and just reach out and touch hearts that of those that have not trusted in you or have only appeared to trust in you, Lord. I pray that, that you would just draw their hearts to the beauty of the cross, the absolute beauty of a wrath-ending, judgment-destroying cross. Thank you, Lord. Help us to see it clearly. Lord, I thank you that you are coming back for me. I thank you that you are coming back for all of my brothers and sisters that I love so dearly here. And there will be a day when all of our pain, all of our heartache, all of our loss will be over. All of our sin will be destroyed forever. And God, we will will serve and enjoy you in a beautiful eternity for all of time. So God, I ask that you would just make that reality transformative in us. Lord, I pray that it would shape the way we face the days ahead. The un, the, the the unsure political landscape, the the economy, the 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 wars and and rumors of wars, the the natural disasters, the 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 crime and all of the terrible things that that we can sometimes see as part of our world, Lord God, help us to realize that we're not of that darkness. We are children of the day, and we're children of the light. And we have every every benefit to walk in your light. And we thank you for this, Jesus. Be glorified among us. Do your work among us. Change us, Lord. Draw us into your holiness. And we give you praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.